because that's what you do when you don't know what to do with this child, apparently. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Kareen from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. I am Fiona, and I'm here with my book friends, Mark, Virginia, and Corinne. And today, we are going to be talking about books with multiple points of view. So dual narrative or multi-narrative, whichever way you took it. Since we're getting like multiple points of view, I was kind of interested, Fiona, as the host of this particular episode, whether you enjoy multiple point of view books or whether you prefer to stick with just one character. As you know, I'll go with whatever, but I do have a strong preference for uh, multiple points of view. I find it really breaks up the book, especially if it's a longer book. I also love just that idea of like seeing multiple ways to look at something. So, you know, when we get a single narrator, narrator, you can get a really strong, like maybe vibe to a book, like this is their world. But then when you put two of them in and you can have, you know, one situation and multiple people talking about it, I find that really interesting. How about you? I think that there are particular genres that lend themselves better to this technique. So, you know, as a romance reader, I think that it works really well when you have both points of view. And obviously, if there's a misunderstanding, then it's so delicious to watch them both slowly try and figure it out. But on the other hand, I find that mystery novels, it is not as fun because half of the challenge of reading something like that is following along with your point of view character to try and unravel the mystery at the same time as them. And if you get the multiple point of views, it just becomes a little bit trickier and or it feels like the author is trying to show off slash obfuscate stuff on purpose, which I don't enjoy. Um, Virginia, what about you? Fantasy kind of notorious for having multiple POVs? Mm-hmm. Yes, and I love it. It's like, it, I think it really like Priyonda said, especially when it's the same event that you get to see from different angles. I love that so much um, because that gives you such a different point of view of it. And it also shows like, you know, sort of how the author really knows their characters, that they're able to present that situation in from different ways. Um, and it really sometimes changes your mind about, you know, sort of what you think about the situation, period. So yeah, I really love that. Mark? For me, I don't really have a very strong preference on this because, for example, on the three books we got listed on our wall right now for our favorite books of 2022, two of them are very clearly multiple perspective books that lean heavily into shifting perspectives to tell a different part of each character's like backstory or perspective on things. Whereas the other one is like entirely from one person's perspective. It's very psychological and introspective. So I guess it kind of depends on what the purpose of the book is like if it's to solve a mystery then maybe a single perspective works better but if it's like to tell you about like how this giant organization works or something like that then maybe multiple perspectives is a better way to go about it because then you can see the different facets of it from different people rather than just having one person give you like a giant explanation of all these different things I think that's a really good point. And I feel like it's like a way for authors to kind of flex of like, I know what I want to do with this. And I am consciously choosing this type of narration. And I wonder if it's like, I guess there's a thesis somewhere in this of like whether by focusing on one person, you're focusing more on the character or two. And whether you're doing multiple point of views, whether you're focusing more on the plot, like 
Where's the, is there a connection? Virginia, you're shaking your head. I don't think so. Because I feel like what's engaging about multiple perspectives is that you get to know all the different characters. It is really so much more, in my mind, so much more about them because how they see the system, how they see the events, not about sort of just like what the system is or what happened, but it's like how, what, through their eyes, what they see and what they get out of it. Like to me, it, I feel like I get to know the story so much better and to get them to know the characters so much better because of the multiple points of view. But I think it has to be done really well because you don't want to have to read a chapter and be like, oh, can we just get back to that other person? Because that often happens too. And that, that shows that, you know, like though these people are just not as interesting. I want to go back to the, and then when you're like, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't do multiple points of view because clearly this is not quite working. So. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, you need to be able to write different kinds of people as well. You don't want all of them to sound kind of the same, which I've found sometimes with some writers, if they kind of sound the same, that's like, well, why isn't it just one person instead? Like, I'm just getting the same kind of stuff, same commentary, same information, same style of like thinking and speech. So that might as well just be one person. But if you have different variations on this, then it becomes more interesting. And I'm curious, like, is there a maximum maximum amount of point of views that and see i i know like virginia and mark you you read some kind of weird stuff but i feel like like two for me is like that's enough that's enough two is fine no you need more more i like three i I personally like three but i kind of wish we had gabriel here and like i'm not sure if cloud atlas is a first person but it certainly has a lot of like going here and going there but it's different storylines all right isn't it in cloud atlas like so it's slightly different in some way because it's almost like interconnected stories in some ways in like a fantasy book can have like a giant castle characters and i would love to get to know all of them and have them tell me their story and it is better than just having one person in a giant cast like one person telling and a giant cast because then you're like who is that person like i can't remember but then if you hear from them then you have a stamp of like, okay, I know this person. I know inside their head. Well, I feel like, okay, until now, there was a lot of like, yes, shaking heads going on here. So it's good that we're all somewhat on the same page. And now we have four wonderful books to, uh, you know, maybe show some examples of of our thesis. Sure. Yeah. I guess in many ways, I'm going to have the book with the most limited points of view, kind of guessing what my fellow book lovers have chosen, but also the most expansive point of view, if that makes sense. Because this particular author writes in the second person plural, so we, so the collective we, but also writes in the second person singular, so you. So in many ways, all of us have a point of view in this book, and we're all included everyone who reads it, and everyone in this imaginary world that the author has built. So if you're into kind of a weird point of view, this is definitely a book for you to pick up. And I think that this is a particular technique of the author because her debut novel that I read was also written in the voice of we, which I will be totally honest, takes a little while to get used to. And then you kind of find yourself immersed in this Greek chorus of voices and experiences, both singular in that they are all individual stories that are being told, but also as a collective community experience. And it's a really, oh, since I was reading an NPR article earlier, I'm going to go revelatory piece of writing. And I feel like that's what this author does so well is that she takes kind of the ordinary and the mundane 
and writes about it so poetically and so incisively that it becomes something magical and bigger than it is. And for this particular work, Julie Otsuka has taken the idea of the swimming pool. Every morning, swimmers unknown to each other, strangers or kind of nodding passing acquaintances go to this university swimming pool to swim laps. Back and forth every morning, whether they know it or not, they are part of an unspoken, unacknowledged community. They are the we in this story, which is a weird sentence that I just said, but here we are. They speak in a collective voice about what this ritual means to them. And they come from all different walks of life. We have judges and university professors and drug dealers and housewives and dog walkers and people recovering from surgery. They all come to this pool for one reason or another to swim laps, and it becomes an important part of their lives. One of the swimmers is Alice, a Japanese-American senior who is a retired lab technician in the early stages of dementia. And for her, her time in the pool is where she can let her mind be free and she feels at home. Unfortunately, all of this changes when a small fissure crack appears at the bottom of the pool. At first, the swimmers, the collective we, try to ignore it, try to pretend that it isn't there. But the crack starts to grow. It eventually grows into something unavoidable, something frightening, an omen of something. And eventually the pool is shut down and all of the swimmers and all of their day rituals are just kind of sent out into the world. This is her third novel. It is called The Swimmers, a novel. It is kind of a follow-up to her first debut, which was amazing, called uh, The Buddha in the Addict, which won the Penn Faulkner Award. This one, I would argue, is kind of two books in one or two novellas. There is the part about the swimmers, and then we shift into the story of Alice, which is told from the point of view of Alice herself, but is also told from the point of view of Alice's unnamed daughter, and also of the care facility where Alice spends her last days. So again, it's that shifting perspective, that that taking that really high, interesting view on a, in a story that is really difficult to read, really, really, really difficult as Alice struggles to understand what is happening to her, as Alice's daughter is, is struggling with the decisions that she has to make, and as the for-profit care facility where Alice is eventually homed is struggling to give care to people while also being a business, this is, again, like her writing is so interesting. And if anyone was to kind of ask me to pick a book that has a really interesting point of view, she always does. She always chooses to approach things from a place that you wouldn't necessarily think to look at. But by choosing to tell a story about someone going through dementia, from the point of view of the care facility, not the people who work there, but the care facility itself as a character, as a point of view, she really just opens your eyes to seeing things in new ways. It is a beautiful, quiet gem of a novel. Again, she's really taking a look at those little rituals, the small things in all of our lives that we don't think about, but when they're taken away from us are so, so 
important. I would highly recommend, even though at the beginning you're going to be taken aback, like, we, 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 you and me, we, you're going to be taken a little bit aback, but let her writing wash over you like the crisp, cool, chlorinated water of a pool in the morning. Even though as someone who had to do competitive swimming, I hate the pool so much. Let it wash over you and let her prose transport you into something amazing in The Swimmers by Julie Otsuka. And definitely, definitely, definitely pick up her first book, um, The Buddha in the Attic. Thank you, Corrine. Yeah, what a great choice for this episode. And as someone who loves swimming and, and that culture of people who get up in the morning to swim, I might just pick it up for that reason. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are going to move on to Mark now. What did you bring in today? All right. So to change something rather different, today I'll be talking about Unwieldy Creatures by Adi Sai. Now, Adi Sai is a non-binary, multidisciplinary writer and artist. They hold a PhD in dance and currently teaches courses at college in literature and dance. And Unwieldy Creatures is their first book following a number of short stories and short nonfiction pieces. And in this story, it follows two queer reproductive scientists from different generations. There's the older, renowned research doctor Frank, or Zed, as her preferred abbreviation of her first name. And there's the younger Plum, who is a junior staff member who has just work, begun work at Dr. Frank's research lab, working on innovative forms of in vitro fertilization. In her first week working at the clinic, Plum witnesses a distraught Dr. Frank break down in anguish and anger. She's unable to leave Dr. Frank on her own, so she invites her to stay her night at her house because she doesn't want her to be like alone. She's kind of worried about her kind of emotional and mental well-being at this time. And sort of once back at Plum's place, uh, Dr. Frank calms down in order to allow Plum to know what exactly is going on in her life, what has brought her to this current state. She offers to tell her essentially her life story. And as you can kind of tell, this is going to be a somewhat long story in some typical kind of narrative fashion. It's like, okay, strap in, uh, girl, you're going to get a long story here. And at this point, essentially, the narrative shifts to the past, with each chapter alternating between Dr. Frank and Plum as they recount their lives up to the present time to one another, essentially. And there's certain commonalities between the two of them that are kind of interesting, as they both grew up with abusive fathers who did not understand or accept their gender nonconformity or same-sex romantic relationships, the struggles to form their own identities while growing up in small towns in the U.S., and struggling to find people who are like themselves, that they felt at home with, or who understood who they are. But aside from these few commonalities, their development took rather different paths with Dr. Frank living a comparatively self-assured and financially prosperous life, as she knew from a young age that she wanted to work in reproductive sciences and through early study was on her way to very prominent, prestigious kind of schools. She had a wealthy father, so the prospect of paying for advanced education and things like that wasn't much of a concern. But Dr. Frank's interest in reproductive science sort of originally stemmed from her own view that her mother and her abusive father, how she had to rely on him for financial support, for his genetic material to make children, and all the other kind of forms of oppression and control that she witnessed from her father's kind of possessive and traditional way of thinking. Her mother was originally a poor working single woman in Indonesia before she met her husband, uh, Dr. Frank's father, who is a wealthy businessman who lives in Texas. His fancy was sort of drawn to this beautiful and sort of quote unquote exotic woman his kind of views of her as like this thing he wants to have more so than like being like a properly like kind of romantic relationship with. 
So it kind of has like this, the man who is very much in control of this relationship. And this kind of influences Dr. Frank's developments and way of viewing things. It's sort of also because Dr. Frank developed this idea also from her own relationship with another woman and sort of the idea that they had to rely on a man in order to produce a child for them to have of their own, the inability to reproduce between the two of them. So that's also kind of drove her perspective, her way of thinking and her desire to bring about a way essentially to create life without the involvement of both sexes, of both male and female. And she becomes more and more obsessed by this prospect as she sort of goes through university into her career. It's very much becomes like a singular focus of her life. But unfortunately, there's sort of like irreversible consequences that sort of come about through what she tries to create through life later on, which I'll get back to in a minute. But on the other hand, there's also Plum. She came to her present career through an altogether different route. She sort of grew up with a single father after the death of her mother. Plum has always felt very disconnected from her father. Despite they share like a language and culture, Plum has difficulty sort of accepting the kind of paternal authority that her father demands of her, that like even a slight bit of lateness to dinner, for example, leads to like hours of interrogation, his father kind of berating her, kind of saying like, why are you disrespecting your family? Kind of very traditional kind of way of being a father towards his daughter that also creates a very strange relationship between them. So they also, Plum and Dr. Frank kind of have these strange relationships with their families, but taking different shapes and forms and slightly. Eventually, as a teenager, after her longtime partner, Ko, leaves her, Plum decides to leave home in order to get away from her father, going through a series of shelters, motels, and unstable housing options until finally, later on in her life, she's able to sort of string together some savings and go back to school. And now she's at Dr. Frank's lab working as a junior employee. In addition to being an explanation of gender identity and sexuality, this book is also meant to be a kind of queer, modern really retelling of Frankenstein. From the doctor's last name being Frank, to the sort of scientific drive to create a new life, unlike anything seen before, there are some very clear parallels in the two stories. Based on this, it's probably not surprising that Dr. Frank's experiments lead to results and consequences that she did not anticipate or is prepared to handle. And there's even lines directly taken from Frankenstein that are spoken by Dr. Frank. So for example, after successfully bringing life through a full pregnancy in her in vitro experiments, she sort of reacts in horror and disgust with the line, but now that the creature was in front of me, the beauty of the dream vanished and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart, which is a direct line from Victor Frankenstein. Later on to the book, we are also introduced to the history, thoughts, and experiences of this creation, quote unquote. I'm not sure what to the proper word to use in this situation is. They are kind of like this, for lack of a better term, genderless giant whose name is Ash. As the creation sort of come to know their own unique sense of self based on their unusual development and upbringing after being abandoned in the forest by Dr. Frank, because that's what you do when you don't know what to do with this child, apparently. <laughs> um, so this unusual kind of experience also comes back later on in the book through Ash's own perspective that they recount to Dr. Frank showing both sort of the joys and pains of the same sex and queer relationships, self-exploration, different perspectives between people, and the kind of possible restrictions that are imposed by family, social pressure from small town communities, and other expectations from teachers and employers and other people in their lives very much plays a key role in this story. And there's also a lot of different expressions of gender from different cultural perspectives. So, for example, Dr. Frank refers to the term kalalai to describe herself, which 
originates from Indonesia. Essentially, Kalalai refers to a woman who takes on more masculine appearance and role within a family and is one of many different gender terms that exist within that culture. So I found that aspect of the book very well done. Definitely gives a different perspective on uh, gender and sexuality from a different cultural perspective, which I found very interesting and helpful. Because sometimes when you read some of these books, it's more Western focused, perhaps. Whereas in this case, uh, Addy Psych definitely gives a very a multicultural kind of perspective on things, which is very good. If you like a science fiction story that draws on re- real world issues of gender, sexuality, and ethnicity, or interested in sort of modern reworking of the kind of Frankenstein story, or if you just want unique story with characters whose lives are both similar and dissimilar from that kind of multi point of view perspective kind of way, then you may also like. Unwieldy Creatures by Addie Sai. Thank you so much, Mark. I am 100% on board with that book. I <laughs> cannot wait to read it. Okay, um, we're going to take a break from our book recommendations and we are going to go to our existential question. Now, this differs from our topic in that I think you may often choose a book based on how many perspectives it has, whereas we are going to be talking about epigraphs, the uh, little quotes or poems that you find at the beginning of a book. And and maybe I'm kind of showing my hand here uh, in how I'm going to answer because they're quite, I find them to be quite random. You know, you might choose your book based on how many points of view it has, but an epigraph is just something that's there, whether you thought it would be or not. <laughs> so my question for my book friends is, Epigraphs, yes or no? How do you feel about them? Yes, for me, absolutely. I love to see them because I always find it's really interesting what authors they pick. And I feel like if it's a well-done one, not a random one, I feel like they do set the tone for the story. Or sometimes it might make you think a little differently when you go back and look at the epigraph. Did it jive with what you read from the story? And I find sometimes too, it helps me discover new authors that I may not know about, especially if they're in a different language, you know, like, so that also like can introduce me to new people. So I definitely a big fan of epigraphs. Yeah, I would definitely agree with Virginia on this one. I just find that epigraph, like she said, can set the tone or can kind of reveal something that either clues you into something you might not have focused on otherwise. So for example, if it refers to like a particular aspect of like a character's like kind of thinking or something like that, then you can kind of relate the two together later on. That might not be obvious at first, but then it kind of clues you into what the author is wanting you to focus on somewhat, I think at least when it's done well. Yeah, it's often like a little, as Virginia said, like a hint of what's to come in the book. And I love it, especially when they're almost kind of setting you up of like, this is the is like the ancestor of this book. Like this is the source that they're pulling from and twisting a little bit differently. I'm thinking specifically of the epigraph for the namesake by Juanpa Lahiri, which is a quote from uh, Nikolai Gogol's The Overcoat, which is the reader should realize himself that it could not have happened otherwise, that to give him any other name was quite out of the question. And that has to do with the whole thing of the main character's father choosing the name Gogol and all the, the literary ancestors that the author is pulling from. And she's just kind of like setting you up perfectly for the book. And one of my favorite quotes 
my favorite pieces of writing that took my breath away was actually an epigraph. And I'm so sorry, I cannot remember what book it was from, but I remember just kind of fl- the book apparently was unremarkable. But the epigraph was that very famous quote by L.P. Hartley, which is the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And I remember just being like blown away by by that little epigraph right there. And as Virginia said, it just kind of takes you down little little roads. So I love it. And bonus points if it's a quote from the Smith song, like... Thank you. I feel like this is giving me an opportunity for self-reflection because and I think that maybe I have a specific gripe, which is it's especially in YA books that they bug me because I find that often they will use a lot of them. And it's like, whoa, like slow down. I don't need five epigraphs, like maybe two. And often they they pull from newer materials, say maybe a Smith song or maybe like something more recent than that. Like I think I was griping to all of you about a YA book that I picked up that quoted Pirates of the Caribbean um, is an epigraph. And and it was this realization that that to a someone who is 20 years younger than me picking it up, you know, like, I don't know when Pirates of the Caribbean came out, but it was it was a long time ago now. So for them, it's like I can draw from this material as not like immediately contemporary material, whereas I'm old and I feel like that may, reminds me how old I am. You know, I am no longer that the the target audience. <laughs> um, so I really like um, what everyone was saying about the idea of like coming back to an epigraph. I don't think I've ever done that before. And I think that's a, 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 a good idea. I, as you know, I really love back material, but that's probably because it comes at the back. But there's no reason that you can't go back to the front when you're backwards in time. Anyway, a lot of revelations happening for me here. Uh, Anyone have any final notes on epigraphs? Uh, I'm going to institute from here on in a ban on Taylor Swift songs used as epigraphs. Just letter B, letter B. That inspired the author, right? Who are we to say? Give a story, a really great story, come out from a Taylor Swift song. So be it. Fine. I'm trying really hard to think of a, a quote from a Taylor Swift song, but I can't. She wears short skirts. I wear t-shirts. All right. Um, (laughs) We are going to move on back on to our uh, points of view discussion with a book from Virginia. All right. I feel like I have to say the epigraph of this book to start with, which is, What shall I be called when all remains of me is a memory upon a rock of a deserted isle? And it is from a Puerto Rican poet called Julia de Burgos. Well, let me introduce you to the Ramirez family, as Nina would describe it. If you were to draw their family history out, first of all, you would draw 18-year-old dad, Eddie, who's trying to woo her mother, Dolores, in Brooklyn. Then you would draw a little bump underneath her wedding dress. That's Jessica, their oldest sister. In 1981, there will be a screaming child. That's Jessica, for sure. And then two years later, you will draw another child, Rufy. But this time, grab a pencil and draw lightly because you will have to erase her in a couple minutes. Then you will draw a car with this loud Puerto Rican family driving towards a little pink house in Staten Island, And then in 1986, you add another child. That's me, Nina. And make sure you make me look cute. And then Rufy turns 13 and she disappears. Now you can rub 
her body away from this page and draw my mother 62 pounds later, give her diabetes, kill my dad, cut a hole in the middle of the timeline, eliminate the canvas, destroy any type of logic. There is no such thing now as a map. Call that black hole is negative space, the incredible disappearance of Rufi Ramirez. That probably was one of the best opening chapters that I have read in a book. And it, like the epigraph, really sets the tone for that whole book. And I could already feel the pain and tears coming to my eye as I was reading that. In 1996, at around 7 o'clock, Dolores looked up and asked, where's your sister? And they all just noticed that Ruby is not home yet. She usually comes home around 6, 6.15, the latest, right after her track meets, and she would demand this big meal so that she can replenish her energy. And none of them noticed that it's 7 o'clock and Ruby still hasn't come home. Dolores was busy cooking, Nina was doing her homework, and Jessica has been on the phone forever. After yelling at Jessica to get off the phone, Dolores started calling around. She called the school, but nobody answered. She called her husband, their father, who was working right now. And as she packed her other two girls in the car, she started threatening, if I find you hanging out and chilling out with your friends, Ruby Ramirez. But Nina could see the worry and the fear in her mother's eyes. They drove around and her mother told them to yell as loud as they can her sister's name, but Ruby never came home and they never found her. And the police have absolutely no interest in helping. To them, Ruby is just another brown girl who has probably run away, nothing to concern themselves with. Fast forward to the present, Nina has just graduated, but she can't find a job, so she decided to take a retail job at a lingerie store at the mall for now. And her new workplace, just this complete microcosm of racism, capitalism, patriarchy. Jessica has a job as a nurse's aide in the hospital. She's a new mother with a baby, totally overworked, trying to juggle everything. And meanwhile, Dolores, their mother, has just picked up a Christian Women Warriors DVD for self-defense in the sales rack at the grocery store, thinking about her diabetes and maybe losing some weight. One night, Nina got a phone call from Jessica. Turn on the TV now, Nina. Channel 6. Oh, come on, Nina. I'm tired. No, now do it. So Nina, grabbing the remote, flipping the channels, and suddenly on the screen, there was this woman who looked exactly like Rufy. Ten years older, perhaps. Same red hair, same brown beauty mark right underneath her left eye. And she was on this reality show. Looks like it's called Catfight. And it seems to be like a bunch of girls living in the same house. They will party. They show them like forming alliances. And then literally they have to fight one another to stay in the house. Nina was skeptical. But Jessica is convinced that this is their roofie. So they watch and rewatch clips after clips. They search on the internet to learn more about this Ruby character. And Nina has to admit that, you know what? It does seem like this is their Ruby. And if this is their Ruby, they have to bring her home. 
This is the debut novel, What Happened to Rufi Ramirez by Claire Jimenez, coming out in March this year. It is a story of a broken Puerto Rico family dealing with the trauma, dealing with the aftermath of a missing daughter, a missing sister, and not knowing how to mend that hole that is in their hearts. And it's told from four different points of view. We got Nina, we got Jessica, we got Dolores, and we also got Ruthie herself telling a little bit of her story. And I find the story really benefits from this multiple perspectives because it really creates a much fuller picture of life after Ruthie because you get to see how each of them, how differently they deal with this disappearance and how each of them carries that guilt and, and keep asking themselves, well, if only I could have done so-and-so, or maybe is there something I could have done more to find Rufy? And all of them was carrying that with them. And it's one of those stories, one of those books that are definitely sad, but also kind of funny at times. The story itself is really devastating. You know, we we talk about all the girls who have suffered sort of similar fate as Rufy. And we also, of course, see what the lives are like, the difficulties that the Ramirez's have to endure as women of color. But there's also these really lighter moments and funny interactions among the characters, like that whole like catfight reality show is totally unreal. And it, it sort of the story builds up to this so-called final showdown in some way. And it's quite hilarious. And they've got these characters, um, especially Dolores, who's acting in ways that maybe you won't expect uh, to happen. So it's sort of the story kind of goes in in, a, in sort of maybe a different way um, than you would normally see this. But I think you too will feel that black hole that Nina described that is just developing in you and you could feel keenly their loss. And at one point, I I definitely feel like my heart just sort of sunk to the bottom. It's interesting because of that lighter touch every now and then, it makes this story not just a hard story to read. And I think this book might have been on Fiona's most anticipated list at some points, but they didn't talk about it, so I sort of stole it. So put your holes on now so you can read this. What Happened to Ruby Ramirez by Claire Jimenez when it comes out in March. Thank you, Virginia. It sounds really gripping. Yeah, it was um, on my list, but then I had a surplus, so I had it got it got knocked off. But I'm really glad you brought it back because it really, really sounds like a great read. I am going to finish things off with a romance. As Kareen mentioned before, I completely agree that I think dual narrative is really great in romance. I think that is a great place for it because, you know, you have all those traditional sort of mishaps and miscommunications. And I sort of appreciate the opportunity to justify them, you know, when someone is interpreting, um, you know, somebody's standoffish or somebody's shyness as standoffishness, and you get to kind of see those little minds working. Yeah, I, I think it's just a, a really, really great place for dual narratives. So today I actually uh, have a sequel, which on one hand, I think is really just an opportunity to re-promote the first book. But I do think that this book has a lot to recommend it on its own and could be read as a standalone. So I am going back to my favorite very first romance, uh, which is Love from A to Z. And this is the sequel, Love from Mecca to Medina by S.K.L.E., who is just a fantastic storyteller. She is a wonderful writer that I really admire. 
I'll give you a little recap about about the original. Um, it is about Zainab and Adam. And they are both very international teens. They actually meet in Doha, where Adam is studying at a international school that his father works at. And Zainab is sent there to stay with her aunt because she's gotten into a little bit of trouble at home, the good kind of trouble. She is a huge social activist and speaks up against her teacher who expresses Islamophobic ideas. So... From there, it's both a simple and complex romance in that it's the it's the usual sort of miscommunications and they eventually figure it out and fall deeply in love. But what I love about the this series and about this author is just how layered it is. Her her characters are very invested in religion, and that's something that they have in common, and something that she writes so beautifully. So I think that that this is one thing to really recommend this book. I know Christian romance is a genre. I, I've never read one before, but what the author seeks to do here is, I think, create you know a genre of Muslim romance, and she says she writes it because. She couldn't find it. You know, she wanted that and it wasn't there. And just the way that she writes this character and their love is so, so touching to see these whole people who connect on so many levels. So that brings us to this book, uh, Love from Mecca to Medina. And it is told from Zainab's point of view, Adam's point of view, and occasionally their cat's point of view. <laughs> And it actually has a bit of an interesting structure. It's sort of set out as like a little bit of a museum display. Each chapter is headed by like an object and then the meaning of that object. Uh, it took me a while to figure that out. So I was like a little bit confused. But in the end, it's kind of a quirky, cute way to tell it that that sets up these dual narratives with occasionally the cat. In this book, Adam and Zainab, um, they have had an Islamic marriage. But they are currently living away from each other. Adam in Doha, working as an artist, and Zainab in Chicago, studying to be a lawyer. They're both having their own issues, and they don't seem to be communicating to each other through the distance. So Zainab currently has no apartment to live in. She is being accused of um, laundering money from the student society that she uh, was a part of. And Adam, on the other hand, is telling Zainab that he's working as an artist, but in reality, he actually hasn't had a gig in ages. Adam suffers from uh, multiple sclerosis, and so that feeds into a lot of his insecurities about providing, being successful, and wondering how long he's going to be able to do that and what the future will hold. Again, playing into that just sort of like the depth of the characters in their lives Zainab's parents are very, they put a lot of pressure on Adam as well to be this provider. And, and he has all these insecurities feeling like he can't live up to that. And this results in this lack of communication. They both have their own fears and anxieties. Plus, they're just stressed with life. And with the distance, they stop communicating. So it's all okay because they know the big day is coming when they're going to see each other. They're going to go stay in a beautiful little cabin together in the UK and they will communicate and everything will be perfect. Until Adam decides that what he really needs to get back on his feet is to take a pilgrimage from Mecca to Medina. This pilgrimage is sort of like a rite of passage and it's something that 
his father had offered to finance for them as a couple when they had their Islamic marriage. So he says, you know what, this is it. This is the perfect time. I need to feel good about something. I need to feel like I have direction and I need to reconnect with Zainab. So we will go on this pilgrimage together. Well, Zainab feels completely blindsided. And of course, uh, when they meet together in Mecca, there's so much other stuff going on and they never get the chance to talk. On top of that, throw in the fact that Adam's old flame is actually running the tour and Zainab becomes jealous. So it can be frustrating sometimes to read about people who are miscommunicating, but I love both of these characters so much. And because we get this inside view of their head um, from their points of view, it doesn't feel at all exhausting to to have them sort of like rethink these things because they figure things out and then they mess other things up and then they figure other things out. And it's really it's it's a nice a character journey that you get to see them on. And and I do think that if you read the first one, you're already so in love with them that, you know, it's just that opportunity to get back in Zainab's head. Yeah. So I really, really recommend it to anyone who enjoys romances with a lot of depth to them. Um, but I also want to recommend it to, I think, like as an outsider, outside of the Islamic religion, it was um, very interesting. There was a lot of like, uh, Mecca is somewhere that only Muslim people can go. So you'll never get an outsider-insider perspective. And this was a really interesting opportunity to to see a story that happens there. And I do think that, you know, it's very generous for the author to let us into that world. So I definitely recommend it if you would like to learn more. But I think that as well, if you are Muslim, that this would probably be a book that would feel so close and, and get you in a way that maybe some books haven't in the past. So I'm really grateful that it's out there and, and you know, and underneath or rather on top of all of that is just a really juicy, lovely, wonderful romance about two characters that you genuinely want to succeed. So that is Love from Mecca to Medina from SK Ali. Uh, and if you want, you can always pick up Love from A to Z, which precedes it. But does it have a happy ending? I mean, it's not even spoilers, I think, if you say it all works out in the end. But it's the journey. It's the journey. <laughs> does the cat find love? That you will have to read to find out. <laughs> Is cat romance a genre? Let's not go there. Agreed. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us today for this discussion of books with multiple points of view. We will see you next time. Goodbye from everybody here on Kif. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.